The phone rang, startling us out of a deep sleep. A glance at the clock through bleary eyes showed that it was 12.30 a.m. It was the dean of men at the Bible college where I had been working, my co-worker, and he said uh, we were needed for a situation at the guy's dorm. Turns out two students had been having a conversation with a young man named Jack. Troubled, difficult past. And as they began to pray and invited him to confess some things in his life, something stopped him from speaking. And when they pulled out the Bible and began to read some verses over him, he began cursing. It was at this time that we arrived uh, with my coworker and I. We asked some of the young men who were out in the hallway to pray as we went into the room. It soon became very clear that we were not dealing with anger issues or some psychological uh, causes. We were dealing with the supernatural forces, the battle against the evil one. We knew this because at times when he would answer a question, he would answer in a voice that was not his own. For the next three hours, we spoke truth, we prayed, we read scripture over this young man, and he began to take back areas in his life that he had given permission to the enemy to have control. Now, the evil forces did not want him to let go of the things that he'd been holding on to. Now, this was not a battle for power. This was a battle for truth. There was no shouting, there was no physical engagement. We were just standing firm against the enemy. Finally, towards the end of our time, I asked Jack, what would you like to say to Jesus? And this is what he responded with these exact words. He said, Lord, I'm afraid that if I confess this to you, you'll leave me alone. I'm afraid that if I give this to you, you will abandon me. There it was, the ultimate lie of the enemy, fear that God was not enough. As we spoke more truth, Jack was set free that night from the evil forces at work in his life, including the fears and his hidden sins. Now, what we didn't know is those young men that we'd asked to pray had gone to every floor, three floors in the dorm, had woke up their other brothers and invited them to pray. And when we stepped out of that room, the hallway was lined with men. And when Jack said, God has set me free, I'm free, there was a cheer, clapping, and lots of men hugs. Praise God for the power of his spirit at work in setting someone free. Now, I share this as a reminder that there are real spiritual forces at work in this world, which Paul is addressing in our passage this morning. We don't often see them revealed in a visible conflict like I just described, but they are always there at work in the background working against the purposes of God and his kingdom in what is often referred to as spiritual warfare or the spiritual battle. 
We don't have to fear them, but we do need to respect the fact that they are real, and we need to learn how to stand firm against them. Peter writes that our enemy is active everywhere, and many of you know this verse in 1 Peter 5. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, notice what precedes this description. He says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. And then notice also what the next verse says. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Did you catch that? The order is very specific, as we're going to discover this morning in our passage. We are to stand firm, according to Peter. We're to, sorry, we're to stay alert. We're to stand firm and to be strong. And this is what we did with Jack that night. We didn't attack or fight. We resisted by standing firm through prayer and God's word. Well, this morning we come to the end of our study in the book of Ephesians in our series, Metropolis, the church at Ephesus. This is not the end of the series as we will get into Paul's two letters that he writes to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, and that is Timothy in a couple of weeks. But our passage today serves as a climax to the letter and summarizes all that Paul has said to this point. Now, most of us have probably read, watched TV shows or movies where there is an exciting courtroom scene. Now, I've read most of, a little disclaimer here, I've read most of John Grisham's books. That's a lot of courtroom scenes. We listen, we read with rapt attention to the presentations before the jury, and then we wait for that final verdict to be revealed. This passage reads very much like a closing argument in an exciting courtroom case. It's like Paul is trying to motivate his readers to action. And his goal in these few verses, as one writer has suggested, is to zoom out from the practical daily living section that he has just covered in chapters 4 to 6, or first part of 6, which has been our last five sermons. So he wants to zoom out from that to give us a cosmic view of what is going on behind the scenes. Now we know that for two years, Paul has been preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus in the city of Ephesus. And people around Ephesus were starting to take note that there was something radically different in the way these believers lived. They didn't abandon their babies, as we heard last week. They looked after the poor. They cared for those in need, even if they didn't know them, regardless of status or race. In short, they loved. Now, this was a shocking cultural difference and made them stand out in the pagan society where they were living. And Paul recognizes that there's this epic battle going on behind the scenes in the heavenly realms to try to stop the spread of this God love, this God love behavior. So he closes the letter with some instructions on how to stand firm against whatever it is the enemy throws at them. So before we look at how we are to engage in the battle, 
or the spiritual conflict, let's see what Paul says about the battle itself. And we'll do that by starting uh, in verse 12 of the passage that Emmy read. 6 verse 12, where Paul says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Paul's language here maybe seems a little harsh or overly descriptive, but to these readers it would not seem so because they lived in a culture that understood there were both physical and spiritual realities. This battle against the enemy is not a physical one, although there were certainly times where it would have felt as if it was. It is actually a battle against the unseen and spiritual forces that are at work, as I described in my opening story. Paul is not saying that their battle is against the Roman authorities or religious or political structures, philosophies of that day. These are simply the puppets doing the bidding of the unseen spiritual forces who are really ruling behind the scenes. Why can we say this? Well, Paul makes it very clear that where this battle is taking place, he says it's in the heavenly places, or as the NIV uses, in the heavenly realms. Now, this phrase is repeated five times in the book of Ephesians. So that should give us an indication that it's important. And listen throughout this sermon, see if you can find the other places we're going to cover most of them. The heavenly places, the heavenly realms. These are the visible day-to-day -day conflicts which are the result of the invisible forces at work. The enemy designed to work against God's plan to sum up all things or to make everything right between heaven and earth, as we saw way back in chapter 1, verse 10, the summing up of all things. Now, we've been introduced to some of the first century conflict in our series through Ephesians, slavery, oppression, violence, poverty, just to name a few. And we don't have to look too far in our world today to see evidence of these spiritual attacks. Just turn on the news and watch what's being played out. And we get a vivid reminder of the physical damage done by these spiritual attacks. Now, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting, nor is Paul, that everything bad that happens in the world is to be blamed on the devil. But Paul is suggesting that a large portion of the conflict that we do see in the physical world is a direct result of the invisible rule of the evil one. By contrast, the good news, which is implied in Paul's language of this passage, is that the battle taking place in the heavenly realms has already been won through Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul says in his prayer in chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand. Where? In the heavenly realms. In other words, to quote one writer, 
The victory has already, has already been won, which means that our battle is not for victory, but our battle is from a place of victory. That is a very important distinction. And I'll ref refer to that two or three more times before the end of the message. Not for victory, but from victory. So often we think or feel defeated before we even get started. The truth is that the victory is already ours in Christ Jesus. So how is that for a closing argument in a court case? Case closed, or is it? Some of you are sitting there maybe thinking, okay, well, if Christ has won the victory over the enemy, then why are we still in a battle? That's a good, fair question. The simple answer is, Christ has won the victory over sin and death, but the reign of evil forces on earth will not be eliminated, as we just said a moment ago, until God sums up all things in Christ at the end of the time on earth as we know it, or as scripture teaches, until God's heavenly kingdom comes down and is established on earth. And this is why Paul is writing these instructions to these Ephesian believers to help them, to help us understand we have victory in Christ to stand against these evil forces and we are not alone in that stand as young Jack had come to believe. So, what does this battle really look like? Paul tells us at the end of verse 11 when he says that we are not to fall for the devil's schemes or strategies. The NLT uses the word strategies. The New International Version uses schemes. So what are those strategies? They are the subtle and not so subtle ways he gets us to fight against each other or against the physical forces around us rather than standing against the spiritual forces. We're going to come back and unpack that in a few minutes. An extreme example of this would be the Crusades. In their zeal to push forth the claims of Christ and eradicate those who opposed, these crusaders fell right into the strategies of the enemy. Now this is not the way of Jesus, who calls us to a life of peace, and yes, even to love our enemies. So what needs to be done in order to overcome these evil forces. Paul gives us a very clear picture of what I'm calling our defense with four simple statements. He says we are to be strong, to put on, to stand firm, and over all of these, to pray hard. Okay, it doesn't actually say pray hard, that's my interpretation, but you'll get the, the gist as we get there. Be strong. Have you ever found yourself saying something like, I can do this, or I've got this? Now that may be fine if you're putting together a shopping list or booking a vacation, but when it comes to the deeper spiritual matters, we should not say that. Why? Because it assumes that we know what we're going up against. The truth is, the battle is against the enemy, and it is real, as Paul knows, and that's why he starts with this command in uh, chapter 6, verse 10, with these words. Be strong, how? 
in my own strength, in the Lord. And if we didn't get that, he then adds, and in his mighty power. There's the distinction. Again, I can't think of a better way to begin a closing argument or challenge. And why can Paul say this? Because of what he has written in the first half of the book of Ephesians, where he talks about our spiritual position in Christ. If you've got your Bibles, flip back a couple chapters. Chapter 2, verse 6. And look what Paul writes in this verse. For he, God, raised us from the dead along with Christ. And what did he do? This is amazing. He seated us with him. Where? There it is again. In the heavenly realms. Seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Because we are united in Christ, that's what happens. So we have spiritual strength. We have authority in the Lord. And what this means simply is that we don't live the Christian life by ourselves or alone. Now it's important to note in this closing passage that Emmy read, uh, our text for today, that every time you see the word you, almost each one of those is written in the Greek in the plural sense. Meaning we don't function as individuals but as a body, the church. Now, for illustration, the Roman army was well known for its tactics in battle. Soldiers would stand in a line against the enemy with their four-foot shields in front of them, and then another row would come behind and hold up their shields over top of them, creating an impenetrable wall that no arrow could pierce. And I think this is the picture that Paul has in mind here in Ephesians 6. As this early church stands together against the forces that strive to destroy God's work, they will be strong in the Lord. That's a promise for us as a church today. Yes, we do come under individual attack, but Paul's point is that we do not have to battle alone. Where have you been trying to be strong on your own? Maybe it's time you let others in the church come alongside. There is a better way, and that is to stand strong together. Look at Paul's second defense. Put on all of God's armor, not some, put on all. Now, I believe the putting on here connects back to, I think it was the passage that uh, Brian preached on in, in chapter 4, maybe it was Dave, uh, chapter 4, verse 24, where Paul says that we are to put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Put on your new nature. As these believers began to put on Christ, that is, take on his character, they were in essence putting on God's armor. Now, the enemy does not want us to take on this new identity, and he will do everything possible to make us think that we don't need to. That's what the strategies or the schemes are all about. So what is this armor? Well, I hope I don't disappoint you. We're not going to dig into that this morning. But if you are in life group, you get to go at it this week. If you're not in life group, there's a little plug. You might want to consider getting into a life group so you can dig into some of this. You'll have opportunity to look at what did Paul mean when he identifies these six pieces of armor. How, how does he put it all together? 
What I'm going to do this morning, just briefly, is make four quick observations about the armor. First observation, whose armor is it? We've just stated, very simply, Paul wants these believers to understand this is the armor of God. Christians literally put on God's character, or as we would say in New Testament language, to put on Christ. Second observation, these physical descriptions of armor are intended to make a spiritual connection. So you have shield of faith, you have helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness. He's making a spiritual connection. Why? Paul has just told us in verse 12 that the battle is spiritual. It is not physical. Third observation, all armor except the sword are defensive rather than offensive. This is interesting. If you do some study or have any knowledge of how you know, some people come at this whole spiritual warfare business. Nowhere in this passage are we told to attack the enemy. It is always couched in defensive language. Holding our ground, or in the case of Jack, taking back ground that had been given to the enemy. The battle truly does belong to the Lord. And again, we resist from a place of victory, not for victory. Fourth observation. The armor Paul is describing is what a Roman soldier would wear into battle and was designed to be most effective when you were facing the enemy. The moment the soldier turned his back to flee, that was when they were most susceptible to serious injury or obviously death. And so that's why Paul's third defensive challenge is so important. Stand firm. Once we take our strength from God and are properly protected, then Paul commands us to stand firm, or as the NIV states, stand your ground. Now we often get this order mixed up, don't we? I know I certainly do. We think we can stand strong by trying harder, or by making promises, or even at times negotiating with God. We try to stand against the temptations of the evil one in our own strength, without the protection of God's armor. None of this will work. We need to be strong in the Lord, put on his armor, and then we're able to stand our ground. Many of you have read John Bunyan's famous Pilgrim's Progress, a classic. When he's describing Christian encountering Apollyon, who is the uh, figure representing Satan in his, in his story, in the Valley of Humiliation, this is what he says. Then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back and therefore thought that to turn his back to the enemy might give him greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. Therefore, he resolved to venture and stand his ground. How well are you standing your ground against the enemy? Is it with the strength of the Lord and using his armor, or are you going it on your own and in your own strength? Our fourth defense from this passage comes as a reminder to pray hard. 
in verse 18. Now, it may seem odd that Paul puts prayer at the end of his closing argument. He's not implying that prayer is less important than the previous three challenges. Rather, he is saying that prayer is the enabling force by which the other three are unleashed. And we can conclude this for at least two reasons. First, by his statement in terms of how we are to pray. We pray in the Spirit. The other reason is by his little use of the word all. Now, if you've got the New American Standard Version, very interesting. It reads like this. We pray with all prayer and petition at all times, with all perseverance, and for all the saints. That's a lot of alls. Think he's trying to emphasize something? That's why I phrased it, pray hard. We pray hard in the spirit. Prayer is the glue that holds our defense together. N.T. Wright says this in his summary of Ephesians. Prayer is the hourly, sorry, prayer is the daily, hourly challenge to live at the intersection of heaven and earth. The daily challenge to live at the intersection of heaven and earth. I would state it this way. We are able to enter into prayer because of our position in Christ. Remember, we're seated with him in the heavenly realms. Prayer enables us to stand firm against the enemy. And prayer is what strengthens the believer to put into practice the life of godly living, which Paul has just written about in chapters 4, 5, and the beginning of 6. Are we known as a praying people? Once a month, we have an evening of prayer here at the church. Why not consider joining your brothers and sisters in standing together against the forces of evil? Okay, so what do we do with all of this? Well, we know that the enemy is crafty, and Paul makes it clear that we're battling against forces and strategies. So how might this look in practical terms? I want to come at it using two examples, an internal example and an external example. First, the internal. In the first part of chapter 4, specifically verses 4 to 6, Paul is making the case that the church should be known by its spiritual unity. Listen to what he says. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, if that isn't a call for unity, I don't know what is. Why would he say this? Because the enemy loves to attack from within. And Paul knows the moment these Ephesians start to bicker and argue amongst themselves, they've lost the battle in a spirit of disunity. Remember, the battle against the church, this is a battle against the church between the heavenly realms, or in the heavenly realms, between the spiritual forces of evil. And Paul actually mentions this back in chapter 3, uh, verse 10, where he says, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers in, here it is again, the heavenly realms or the heavenly places. The enemy cannot stand against such unity. So how are we doing as a church in this matter of unity? I wonder if we're seen as a formidable force in the, against the forces of darkness. I was reminded of this a few days ago when I was actually working on this very point on my sermon. 
and I got an email from a former student. Um, she's now a missionary in North Africa, and this is what she wrote. Life is generally hard here for our brothers and sisters, but discord and sharp disagreements still happen within the body. In fact, sometimes it seems like there are more factions than there are people. I know the devil would like us to believe that he's winning, but the truth is he's already lost. Please lift up this body of the North, North African country with me. Please ask that healing would take place between our brothers and sisters. Please ask that as people see forgiveness in action, that it would draw them to the Father. How could I not stop in the middle of my sermon preparation and pray for my friend Carrie Jo and her ministry in North Africa? How often are we praying for unity as a church? And not just for our church, but for the church around the world. I do want to just make a, a comment here about unity. Unity does not mean that we have to agree with everyone and about everything. We know that we're very blessed here at South Langley Church to have a diverse group of people, and that is a good thing. Sometimes in a group our size, even in smaller groups, we will disagree over various matters. Those can actually serve to make us stronger if we hold to the word of truth and if we approach them in love. I do believe, though, that unity does mean that we need to be moving as a church in the same direction and holding on to a shared vision. Perhaps like helping people know and follow Jesus. Isn't that what we're really called to be doing here at South Langley? All right, the external example. The enemy also loves to attack from an external perspective. And we know this early church was living in a culture that was anti-Christian. And it would have been very easy to fall into a cycle of complaining, bitterness, and anger towards those in authority at that time. Guess what? We too are living in a culture that is becoming more and more antagonistic towards Christianity. In fact, some days it feels like we are under siege here in Canada. Christians are being accused of intolerance, bigotry, exclusivism, sexual and social prejudices, narrow-minded religiosity, among other things. What is our response? We can get angry and rant about the government, organizations, policies, or an unjust society, but is that our real battle, according to Paul? What if we focused our attention and prayer toward the real enemy behind the scenes? What if we looked for ways to make a difference in our society as this early church did in caring for the poor, the marginalized, and the needy? You know, history shows that when the church is fighting against itself or against those in authority, it has not gone well. The way of Jesus in response to these internal and external examples says simply, love one another, love your enemies. Doesn't get any simpler than that. Any other response is to play right into the forces of the evil one. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and begin getting ready to close. So how do we pull this all together? I want to give you three, I'm going to call them action points as we're talking about a battle here this morning. Three action points. First one, remember 
our defense. Paul has presented his closing argument, and the verdict is this. In order for the victory to happen, we need to be strong, we need to put on, we need to stand firm, and we need to pray hard. And we often come at these in the wrong order. Be strong. Ah, I can do it. I can do it on my own. Put on. Now I can put on my own protection. I've got this. Stand firm on my own. I'm good enough. Or pray in my spirit that is according to my will rather than the will of what God has for me. So is it any wonder why we feel defeated so often? So the question is, which one of these is out of order? And which one will you choose to work at this week and bring back into order? Second action point, understand the battle. Keep the battle against the real enemy, spiritual, not physical. To quote N.T. Wright again, he says, sometimes the attack will take the frontal form of actual authorities in towns and cities who try to prevent Christians from spreading the message. Sometimes it will take the more oblique form of persuading Christians to invest time and energy in irrelevant side issues. Sometimes it will be simply the age-old temptations of money, sex, and power. But in each case, what individuals and the whole church must do is recognize that attacks are coming and where they are coming from. So where have you been fighting? Against someone or something rather than against the spiritual, work, spiritual forces at work behind the scenes. And then the third action point, recognize victory. Said it several times. We battle from victory, not for victory. So are you living from that perspective? Now, if you were here church three months ago and heard me preach on Paul's prayer in chapter 3 of Ephesians, you'll remember that morning we did a little exercise. We asked you to write on a little card areas where you felt powerless or helpless. And then Pastor Dave read some of them from the front. They put in a box, he prayed over them, and we laid them at the foot of the cross. That's three months ago. How have you been doing since then? I haven't forgotten. I still pray. If you feel like nothing has changed, maybe it's because you are not living from a perspective of victory or you're focused on the wrong battle. Now, please hear me. I'm not suggesting if you follow these three action points, everything is going to be okay. That's not what Paul is saying either. But he does make it clear in this passage that we don't battle alone. And that's my invitation. That's the challenge for us this morning. Will you let others come alongside and help carry your burden? One of the things I appreciate about our church is the sharing times. Uh, those of you that are on the prayer chain and how that is used and, uh, and a blessing to so many. If you've got something this morning that is weighing heavy on your heart, you're feeling this battle, you're feeling pressed in, I we'll invite you to come for prayer. We have an area on the side here. There'll be some people willing to pray with you. One of the staff, I'd be more than happy to pray with you as well. 
But if there's things that you would like to work through, you're wrestling with things, and you just need that other person to come alongside. Maybe it's someone you've come with this morning, or you want to find someone that you, you know and spend some time praying. But I encourage you to do that. And my prayer for us at South Langley Church for this morning and going forth is that may God would give us the grace to stand firm against the enemy. Amen. Mm -hmm.